0: Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a -a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. I'm Sasha Ann Simons and this is Reset. Starting today, all Illinois residents 16 and older are eligible for a COVID-19 vaccination. One hitch for Chicago residents, though. They'll have to wait until next Monday to get vaccinated in the city, but they can travel to the suburbs this week. Speaking of the burbs, COVID-19 cases are on the rise in suburban Cook County. We're seeing a 520% increase in south suburban Linwood and a 250% increase in north suburban Glencoe, to name a few. Now, here to talk about vaccine eligibility and the rise in cases, is Emily Landon. She's an infectious disease specialist at the University of Chicago. Hi, Dr. Landon. Welcome back to Reset. Thanks for having me. Good to be back. So that vaccine eligibility for everyone 16 and up, it covers Illinois, but not Chicago. Why is that?
1: Well, the good news is that Chicago has such a high demand for vaccine that they're just not ready yet to open it up to everyone. It would create a little bit too much chaos. So if you're able to drive, you can drive out to the suburbs or to any other place in Illinois and get your vaccine this week. Otherwise, just wait until Monday and then you can get it here, too. I really hope everybody has this much demand, but I think that's what we
0: can pin it on. So who is eligible right now to receive the vaccine in Chicago?
1: So in Chicago, it's really just um, groups 1A, 1B, and 1C. So if you're a healthcare worker or someone with a a comorbidity or some sort of medical problem that puts you at higher risk, or if you're a frontline worker, then you can get vaccinated right here in Illinois now or in Chicago right now. Everyone else, the sort of everyday healthy people who are 16 and up that want to get vaccinated, then you'll need to head out to the suburbs or downstate if you want to get vaccinated this week. And I think if you can do it, you should
0: i'm a little bit surprised to hear you say or hear you encourage folks go from chicago to the suburbs to get vaccinated what's the thinking behind that
1: well the faster we can get people vaccinated the better there are certainly some counties and parts of the state that are outside of chicago where they have um, less demand for the vaccines or for whatever reason they have more vaccinations available than they have people who currently want them and just because You know, we have more people in Chicago. The vaccine's been allocated based on our population, but it seems like we might have a bigger demand. So more people trying to get the vaccine. It's just a matter of going somewhere where it's a little easier to get it.
0: So how are current vaccinations impacting hospitalizations, doctor? Where are we at with that?
1: Well, the vast majority of Chicago and Illinois are not seeing big increases in hospitalizations yet. The cases are, as you noted, going up. And what we're seeing right now are sort of those smaller fires that sort of come together, their outbreaks, their littler outbreaks that then sort of expand and they maybe touch each other and become bigger outbreaks and affect whole communities. And we're starting to see those expand. And I think what we're going to see going forward is something a lot like what we're seeing in Michigan. So the vaccines are very good at preventing mortality and morbidity. So they make you not get as sick. And that's great, but it's only great for the people who've gotten them. And so far, the vast majority of the people who've gotten the vaccines are older. So there are far fewer susceptible individuals in the older populations who can get COVID so badly that they'll end up in the hospital. However, B117, the variant from the United Kingdom that is predominantly circulating both in Michigan and here in Chicago and Illinois, is way more contagious. You can pick it up way more easily than you could pick up the old COVID. It's just not forgiving at all. And it tends to cause more illness in a group than more people get sick in a group than they than they would have in the same exposure previously. But beyond that, they also get sicker. So we're seeing younger people be more symptomatic. So in other words, where you might've just had a headache and not felt great for a couple of days. Now you're so sick, you got it. You feel really awful for a week. And then there are the people who probably would have just felt sick for a week, now may need hospitalization. That's what you're seeing in Michigan, younger and younger individuals who haven't yet had the chance to get vaccinated, maybe even healthy individuals that don't have any other medical problems ending
0: up in the hospital. Wow. And so this vaccine eligibility, this opening this up, this comes at a critical time. Uh, Tell us why COVID cases are increasing just all across the suburbs right now.
1: B117. The answer to that yeah. is the variants. It is so unforgiving. And we've seen it. It's it, it, even to me I've been telling people how how contagious it is for many months now. But seeing some of these clusters and working with individuals who are part of some of these clusters and doing some of the, you know shoe leather epidemiology, it's unbelievable. You just no one catches a break. You know, whereas you might have had, you know, 10 people in a room before and somebody had covid, maybe a few of them would have gotten covid. Now it's everything. There's no you're not getting out of it. So I mean, I'm sure some people are getting out of it, but it doesn't feel like it as an epidemiologist looking at it. It just feels like you just can't catch Mm -hmm. a break.
0: And and each of the vaccines that we have available here in, in Illinois, they all work against this variant?
1: They do, and they work really well, actually. They work better than we expected them to do. Um, most people are not getting sick after they've had a vaccine. Of course, you know 5% of people who've been vaccinated will end up getting symptomatic COVID, but those people are getting really mild cases. It's very rare for us to see someone who's had both of their vaccines or one dose of Johnson & Johnson um, go on to be so sick they need to be in the hospital. Most of those people that are in that situation have lots of other medical problems and their vaccine may not have taken as well. So for healthy people and for for the sicker, those with other comorbidities, it's just so important that you get these vaccines because what The other thing we're seeing is even though you don't get very sick, you also don't really pass it on very well. So you seem to have a really low level of virus in you that just sort of enhances your immunity. It's like having a cold that not everybody in your family will even get. It's much, much better.
0: Doctor, are you concerned at all that uh, that particular variant we were just talking about, that it could become the most common strain?
1: Oh, yeah. I suspect that it already is the most common. Strain. Okay. The most recent increase in cases uh, we hasn't even had a chance to be sequenced yet, but they're behaving like B117 has behaved. They're not behaving like old COVID sort of was. And I wouldn't be surprised at all if we already find out, but that, that information will be uh, sort of, it lags behind the information that people are positive. It takes a little while for us to get everything sequenced, to get the samples to the right place and get them sequenced. So I would say if you're around somebody with COVID, you're around somebody with more likely than not had B one one seven or one of the other variants. And those can be pretty, like I said, pretty dangerous. Mm -hmm. Even young, healthy people are ending up in the hospital. Now, they're probably going to be okay, but I would argue that it's pretty disruptive to your life and to your livelihood to have to be in the hospital for an extended period of time and take that long recovery.
0: Well, you talk about young people. They also seem to be the ones that are driving up COVID cases. Yeah,
1: Same as before, we're seeing a lot of them are concerned about COVID and may have may feel like they're taking a lot of precautions. But I think, um, you know, I've had conversations with people who tell me that they're taking every precaution. They're being super careful. And then when we talk about it, they're like, I've only eaten at restaurants twice in the last month. Mm. And I'll tell you, I haven't eaten in the restaurant since last February, I think. So um, I think that there's a different degree of sort of the amount of care that's being taken. And that may have been okay before we had B117. But I think a lot of people are starting to realize that some of these things that they sort of skated by and did okay and may have avoided catching COVID before are the same situations where they're more likely to catch COVID now.
0: So what should we do about that? I'm, I'm thinking of a lot of folks in my life that I talk to, my family, my friends, they're in Canada, they're in Toronto. And they just this past Thursday went back on lockdown right Uh, here in Chicago. Should we consider re-implementing some some of our previous restrictions that we had on bars and restaurants, for instance?
1: Well, I think that's a tough decision. I mean, I'm I have been a proponent of keeping bars and restaurants closed until this indoor dining anyway, until this is basically over. Um, but obviously, that's not going to keep those places open, right. and it's not going to allow people that have been vaccinated and are probably more safe to be able to eat indoors the opportunity to be able to do some of those things. So I think we need to get our priorities in order and figure out what to do. Right now, you know, the, the reality is that everyone who's in very high-risk periods for having, for having death or long ICU hospitalization from COVID has had an opportunity to get a vaccine. The, and and if they choose not to get the vaccine, that's kind, you know, I think we need to do everything we can to try and get those people vaccine as quickly as we can. But for everybody else, even if you do have a more severe illness than you thought you were going to, the vast majority of them are not going to die or have long-term morbidity. And so I think a lot of people look at those statistics and say, we shouldn't be, Um, You know, they're not likely to use up so much of our medical resources that we're not able to um, care for other patients. And so there's no reason and they're not likely to die. And so there's no reason to shut down economies on their behalf. Now, I don't necessarily agree with that argument because I think a lot of people see when things are open that that means that they're safe because we rely on our government to do things like put up safety rails and, you know, and inspect elevators, you know. So we expect a lot of things to be safe. But I think right now the most important message for people is just because it's open doesn't mean it's safe. And I think it's gonna be on us to make our decisions about what's safe and what's not safe until um, you know for a little while. But I would say it's, we should think about those things. I just don't think they're gonna happen.
0: We've talked about this on the show before, but what do you think open eligibility means for high-risk people? who haven't gotten the vaccine yet? Because Chicago is home to many of them, particularly Black yeah. and Latinos.
1: So the good news is that Chicago is continuing its program of trying to be in the neighborhoods where the highest risk people are the least likely to get vaccinated and so those places um chicago is going to continue to be right there trying to get them vaccines trying to get them in quickly and that's um a different process than it is to sign up at the united center or to just you know show up at a or to call and get a, a vaccine appointment at, at a you know a Walgreens or whatever. And so I think that as long as we continue to try and provide equity by enhancing the access to these groups that are um, at the highest risk and that may need that honestly have every reason to be concerned or may not be able to get to some of these other sites. I think uh, those are the places that we need to continue to enhance the access by making it even easier for them to get the shot. And everyone else can um, log in online and try and find a location where they can get theirs.
0: Speaking of COVID, the first person to die in Illinois from COVID-19 was a Black woman. Now, more than a year later, we are still learning about how the virus is impacting some communities more than others, specifically how it's affecting black communities. A new study from Harvard University's Gender Sci Lab found that black women in Michigan and Georgia are dying at three times the rate of both white and Asian men. Researchers say their analysis complicates the narrative that overall it's men who are dying at greater rates than women. Sarah Richardson is the founder and director of the GenderSci Lab and a professor of the history of science at Harvard. And she joins us now. Hi, Sarah. Welcome to Reset.
2: Hi, Sasha. Nice to be with you. So how did
0: you approach this new research on on those who are dying from COVID? What what were you hoping to learn, first of all?
2: Well, the lab has, uh, so we specialize in understanding sex and gender differences in biomedicine. And since the beginning of the pandemic, um, we've been tracking sex disparities in COVID-19 mortality and cases in U.S. states. And so we have a publicly available tracker on our website um, that's been used by many researchers to try to understand these disparities. Um, And of course, we understand that in order to capture really what the causes of these disparities are, we need to know more than just what somebody's sex or gender is. We need to know uh, various variables that interact um, with that, including age and race, ethnicity and um, Uh, comorbidity or pre-existing conditions. And so we also have been tracking how states are reporting um, this more fulsome set of socially relevant variables for understanding specific vulnerabilities of specific groups. And among those was race and ethnicity. Now we're more than a year into the pandemic and still only two states are reporting enough data in a format um, that could allow us to understand how race and gender or sex are intersecting to create vulnerabilities. And that's what this report, um, what this new study reports right. out.
0: Yeah, those two states are Georgia and Michigan. So walk us through the main findings.
2: Well, the main findings of this study um, are, well, first of all, Black men, have far higher mortality rates than any other sex or racial group. They have including over six times the mortality rate of white men. And this is a finding in both states. So even though these are the only two states reporting this kind of data, these two very different and very large states with different strategies in the pandemic still have the same pattern when it comes to race and gender. Um, So, But without ignoring that enormous burden carried by Black men, uh, our study emphasizes the specific vulnerability of Black women. And um, one of the sort of uh, very early on in the pandemic, the idea took root that there's something unique about the SARS-CoV-2 virus, that, it, it, that men are biologically more uniquely vulnerable to it. And so this idea took root that men are more vulnerable than women, sort of in gra- aggregate as a group. And our study really um, shows starkly how that kind of view um, can make invisible the specific vulnerabilities of Um, specific groups of men and specific groups of women within those categories. So black women, we found, have COVID-19 mortality rates that are almost four times higher than that of white men and three times higher than Asian men. Um, So that tells you that if we focus on this particular group, the vulnerability is far greater than many men (laughs) in the community, right? And to give another way of putting it, the disparity, the difference in mortality rates between Black women and white women were much larger than the disparity between white men and white women. So there's more variation among women than there is between white men and white women.
0: Given this data, Sarah, do you expect that these trends are going to hold nationwide?
2: Well, there is there are some limitations to the data. I mean, certainly having only two states is a major limitation. Another limitation is that um, these two states don't give us a way to understand. Hispanic uh, or Latinx outcomes separately from Black outcomes, and this is a failure of the lack of consistency in health reporting categories across locations in the U.S., um, we expect that there are probably significant findings with regard to those groups as well. But uh, Given the larger findings about how Black Americans have fared during the pandemic, yes, I think that this gives us a very good idea of the kind of variation in sex disparities that we have across groups.
0: I mentioned earlier that, you know, research researchers uh, say that this analysis um, complicates the narrative that overall it's men who are dying at greater rates of the virus than women. Can you talk more about that?
2: Yeah, um, I think that uh, one, of the, one of the early lines in the pandemic, as I said, was uh, that more men were dying. And that was true in aggregate in the very early surge of the pandemic. But we know in the Gender Psy Lab, because we've been tracking geographically by state, our analysis shows that there's great variation depending on the state that you're in. So in Connecticut, where I happen to be sitting right now, men and women have fared equally. During the pandemic. But in Texas, there's a massive, um, massively worse outcomes uh, for men. And so this variation across location is complemented by the work that we've done in this study about variation across ethnic and racial groups. To suggest that there must be a very large role for social factors, contextual factors, in creating these disparities. Now, when we talk about racial disparities and COVID, I think it is well recognized, uh, there's a broad consensus that racism and social inequities underlie those outcomes.
0: What are some of those social factors?
2: mm, Well, we expect that um, among them, an important factor would be occupation and having the resources to be able to socially distance. Um, So just that factor alone um, varied tremendously across social group, as we know. Um, And one of the things that our paper highlights and may help uh, other researchers test is the very specific vulnerability of Black women in this regard. So for example, we know that Black women um, were more often in essential uh, worker roles, including roles like home health aides that did not have adequate protection in the earlier stages of the pandemic. And um, in this way, the kind of work that we're doing might help guide policy to attend specifically to those vulnerabilities. So occupation would be a big one, okay. pre-existing healthy conditions, which themselves are caused by um, a wide range of social factors. And um, we might also think about uh, areas like housing and economic vulnerability.
0: Sarah, you say the hope is that more states will begin to properly track this information. How do you think we can get there?
2: It's really challenging. I found in trying to share this information and our findings that there's um, a lack of understanding of the importance of how these categories intersect. Um, And so in the early stages, there was a lot of effort to get states to simply report uh, the outcomes by sex or gender and by race and ethnicity. And it took several months just to get that tagged onto the data. But the problem that we're having is getting people to, getting state agencies to report that data in a format that allows us to look at the age, at the race, ethnicity, and at the sex or gender simultaneously. And without that, we're really hamstrung in identifying these specific vulnerabilities. And it leads us into sort of stereotypical generalizations about groups. So... We really need to make a national push and the CDC and our national leaders can play a role in setting standards for data reporting at the state level that would allow us to see more in these more fine grain patterns.
0: What else do you want to see from policymakers around the issue of racial equity, especially when it comes to vaccine distribution?
2: Yeah, I think you're right that this sort of finding can really point to a need to target specific vulnerabilities in communities. So um, the uh, very, very high rates of mortality by Black women suggests an urgent need to ensure access um, to the vaccine uh, in In those communities, in those workplaces, um, and of course, black men as well. If the disparities that we're seeing in access to the vaccine go on, we're only going to see the exacerbation of these patterns. In fact, they exactly reflect the the patterns that we're seeing here. And so, I would hope it would really support. Attention to targeting um, vaccine access to the communities that need it. Well,
0: we thank you for your great work and for shining a light on this really important issue. That's Sarah Richardson. She's founder and director of the Gender Sci Lab at Harvard University. Appreciate your time, Sarah.
2: Thanks. Pleasure to speak with you.
0: And that's today's reset for the best most up-to-date information about the pandemic and the vaccine rollout, go to wbez.org and watch this podcast feed. Every Sunday morning, Dr. Mia Taramina answers listener questions about COVID-19, the different vaccines, and the latest science on how to keep you and your loved ones safe. Just make sure you're subscribed to the Reset Podcast. I'm Sasha Ann Simons. Thanks for listening. We'll meet again tomorrow.